Hello and welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams and this is episode six. of Longway Homestead in Manitoba, Canada. And Anna, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. Can you just tell us in general just a little bit about yourself and what you do specifically? Sure. Um, So I wear a lot of different hats, um, but definitely most recently I call myself a shepherdess. We have a small flock of Shetland sheep on our farm which is 140 acres east of Winnipeg in Canada Um, and then as of this past summer we also have started a wool mill so now we uh, own and operate a small wool mill Uh, so we farm and we manufacture yarn and we do a little bit of gardening and livestock farming for food Um, yeah and then I'm a parent so those are kind of all the hats I wear right now so you've definitely got a full-time job and a full-time job and a full-time job all together. <laughs> it's true. <clears throat> My husband often says that uh, we live in this state where there are three things to do and only two people to do them. So <laughs> <laughs> at least till my children are old enough where I can uh, put them to work without feeling too guilty for it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's, I think that's great. It's really impressive. And obviously we'll get into the details of some of that, but I mean, how did you even get started with what you're doing? Um, Well, how much time do we have? It's kind of a story. But um, (laughs) essentially, my husband Luke and I lived in Vancouver, uh, which is the west coast of Canada. And um, I had been involved in anti-poverty work for, you know, almost 15 years and kind of was burnt out and needed a break. And he said, well, the only other thing that you really care about is knitting. So why don't you do something with your knitting? So I decided to open up a yarn store um, in our community, East Vancouver, and I wanted to open up a yarn store that was more based on community and providing a safe space for people that don't really fit the mold of knitter or fiber artist or crafter out there. So I started a yarn store and, um, and it was awesome. It was amazing. And we had two kids and we ran the, the neighborhood yarn store and pretty quickly um, I realized that there was a gap in what we could offer in terms of the store and that was local wool there was lots of locally dyed wool but that yarn was all being sourced from elsewhere it was being manufactured overseas and um, you know so that kind of was the seed that was planted in my in my mind around um, connecting farmers who lived in British Columbia at that time and the all these urban crafters that wanted that were that were prioritizing local product in their food and their other purchasing choices um, but we couldn't access yarn um, so fast forward a few years we needed some more space for our children and um, you know Vancouver is not a very accessible city so we started looking elsewhere and we realized that if we moved to the prairies where my husband's family was from that we could have a farm immediately so we packed everything into a u-haul 
moved three provinces over and uh, found 140 acres um, of farm and mixed land, and we and we moved. Um, we kind of had this five-year plan. We were going to move. We were going to get settled. We were going to get established. And in five years, we'd start a sheep farm. And it we kind of condensed that down to about 12 months. I was very impatient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, I, I did a Kickstarter, raised some capital, built some fencing and a shelter and, um, yeah, we started sheep farm. I, I always say to anyone that if they're considering livestock or some sort of farming endeavor that, um, start with chickens because they're really the gateway animal. I brought home six chicks and thought <laughs> if I can keep these chicks alive, I can do anything. Um, <laughs> that's how it happened. So, um, yeah, two summers ago, we started, we started with our Shetland flock and, uh, very exciting moment, all four sheep that we had, it felt huge. And then in the spring, when we sheared them the first time, I realized that there was no place to process wool. So I started looking around, um, all the mills, all the smaller mills in Canada had very big wait lists, like 12, 18 months long. Wow. To process my, my four fleeces of wool. And, uh, and then the bigger mills all had minimum weight. So I had to have at least 50 pounds before they'd process it. So I ended up actually going down to North Dakota, a mill in North Dakota. And that mill's amazing and wonderful and does beautiful work. It's just, you know, a little more complicated crossing the border to have that work done. So really quickly, we realized that, um, there was a gap in the services, um, in where we live. And, and so this past summer we decided, or we, we had decided about a year ago, but then this past summer we, we built the mill and bought equipment. And now we're the only mill in um, Manitoba and Saskatchewan that's processing sheep and alpaca and llama wool. That is amazing. That's actually completely amazing. (laughs) Uh, It's one thing to be like, well, we don't have this in our area. And another thing to be like, we're just going to do it <laughs> <laughs> or crazy <laughs> or a little bit of both. Well, I'm sure everyone appreciates it. That's probably the longest wait time I have ever heard of for far fiber processing. I mean, I think even that Dakota mill in North Dakota, which is where I'm planning on sending some of my fleeces this year, there's, they have six months, which feels mm-hmm. super long to me, but wow. Yeah. 12 to 18 months is crazy. Well, and now that I have a mill, I really understand it because it's a, it's a lot of work and it's, and it's hard work and you're sometimes working with, um, fiber that has its own challenges or whatever. And, um, yeah, I under, I understand now why those wait lists are, are the way they are, especially because there's so many small farmers too, that, that really want those services. So, um, sure. yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm hoping that more mills will pop up all throughout Canada and the States because it's such a necessary service and I, and really important if we want to see the industry continue to grow and thrive. Yeah, exactly. It's an important step in it all. It's not just having the sheep, but being able to have a place to process that fleece afterwards. And I think that's, that's something Mm -hmm. that also needs to be really kind of promoted in a way. So that makes, that makes sense. So, okay. So I know that you guys, you guys do have Shetland. So are the, is that the only breed you have or do you have others? Um, we, we focus on the Shetlands. I think I have six or seven sort of Merino, Cotswold, 
mixes. Mm. <laughs> it was kind of a, again, you know, there's, I don't know if in South Dakota, you guys have Facebook livestock pages, but I've actually had to hide mine from my feed because I find myself like at least once a month saying like, oh my gosh, I need to buy an Angora rabbit or, oh my gosh, <laughs> look at this Kune Kune pig. I need to buy that. So I like, I've just had to stop with the Facebook livestock pages because they're just too appealing to me. So anyways, I bought um, three pregnant ewes that were Merino mixes and who knew what the Rams were, but I just love them and they were such a good deal. So, so I, I have, although now I, I don't regret buying those animals, but I, I really like focusing on the Shetlands. So the other ones are just sort of my special sheep, but they're lovely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, that, that makes sense. Um, and I don't know about Facebook livestock, but we do have lots of groups around where I'm at. And so I kind of have, because I'm not on a acreage or anything like that we have things like exotic animal groups or mm. uh, parrots, which I, I have a couple of small birds, but I really love birds. And I have been banned by my husband from going on them anymore. <laughs> and same with exotic, because the last time I brought home a skunk and that didn't work out as well as we wanted it to. So. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a little complicated. <laughs> yes. But I, I feel you there. I really do. <laughs> Yes. Well, and now I understand why people are trying to sell them, right? Because they were probably me three months earlier being like, yes, it makes perfect sense to bring this animal home that I have no habitat or housing or food for. (laughs) No, that's true. And every animal is like, they're all so unique. And they really, it's not just, you can just bring them home and be like, okay, here we go. I'm sure we can figure this out. It ends up being just some crazy endeavor it's like they have to have the perfect diet the perfect habitat they have to have this and this and this and then you're like oh dear what did I do (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) you know it is good it is good I think to have the people in your life that are like you know what maybe we should put a hold on this let's just (laughs) stop purchasing animals so not the not enablers the ones (laughs) exactly yeah So did you have in your mind that you wanted Shetland from the beginning or how did you choose that breed? Oh my gosh. I, you know what? I look back at, at who I was in this livestock farming journey three years ago. And like, I'm a little embarrassed and I see the people that I had those first conversations with on a regular basis. And I'm like, they must just be shaking their head at me. Um, But no, I, so neither my husband or I have any experience farming, um, certainly not livestock farming. Um, And, and I really didn't even know that much about sheep breeds when I started on this journey of what do I want, what sheep do I want to raise and how do I want to do it? Um, But I, I just started calling all the other sheep farmers who I knew produced wool um, in our province. And I said, you know, can I come out to your farm and check out your operation and talk with you and pick your brain? And I was, and every time they'd say like, well, what are you interested in? And I was kind of like, uh, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I want a small flock and I want sheep. And uh, that's that. <laughs> um, it's funny how much I didn't know back then. <laughs> and so my choice around Shetlands was the reason I I settled on Shetlands was one access. There are a lot of, or there at this point were a lot of Shetland farmers in Manitoba. So I had access to good quality breeding stock um, from farmers that I trusted. 
Um, and the second reason was they're a, a little bit of a smaller breed. And when we started out with sheep, I wanted my sons to be, you know, definitely around and a part of the operation. And so a smaller breed seemed like a smart idea with my very small boys running around. Um, you know, now that I've been raising Shetlands and learning so much more about them, I, I've realized what just a, a beautiful breed they are. Um, they're a heritage breed. The, the color variations in their fleeces is absolutely beautiful. Um, and so I'm really happy that that sort of ended up being what I found. Um, but there wasn't much reason to it behind what, when I was first choosing. Sure. And I think that's okay too, because I mean, if you end up coming into it and loving it for what it is and, you know, there's always something to appreciate in a breed, I think, regardless of what it is, but yeah, um, totally. I've heard a lot of really good things about Shetlands about like their intelligence level being a little bit more than the average sheep and, you know, them being, you know, kind of self-sufficient in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and in being being a heritage breed or an unimproved breed, you just don't run into some of the problems that that some of the other breeds have, and um, they're very hardy foragers. So, um, you know, I really trust that what, what we're trying to do on our land base, they're gonna they're gonna do well with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they are very personable. I've you know now that I kind of I've gotten to know them, uh, I really love the the breed. Oh, that's so good. So, okay, so I kind of want to talk about the the farming aspect of it um, because you guys have such passion about the land. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd love to know kind of, you know, what your guys' goals are, what your values are as far as, you know, land stewardship goes. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I mean, I, f- I feel like we are on this journey where every day and week and month and year um, that that vision is being redefined or refocused. Um, certainly in terms of the education that we are experiencing as we're, as we're working on the land and working in the land, um, and then also just the amazing mentors and people that I've had the privilege of getting to know um, like I said, I didn't, we didn't really know what we were doing when we got into it. Um, and the first winter where I kind of thought, you know, what, what am I trying to do? What's my focus? I felt a little bit lost and confused and I ended up getting a book by Joel Salatin or Salatin, um, called You Can Farm. And it, it really shifted my perspective on what was possible and what was necessary. And, you know, my, my dad grew up on a, commercial grain farm in Saskatchewan and so that had been my whole perspective on farming right was like big combines Mm. big rows and rows and rows of wheat or soy or whatever um and you know observing the the land base where trees had been stripped and fertilizer had been applied and you had to spray herbicide on fields because otherwise, you know, fungus would overtake your crop and then you wouldn't eat for the year. And um, just this very specific vision of farming. So reading books in that first winter and being like, oh, wow, like there's a whole other side to this farming business that I had no idea how important. And and that really was way more in line with my values um, in terms of how I see the world and 
trying to uh, be a good steward of the land and climate change and all those things. So, so that was sort of the first big shift and sort of reading about how animals, um, particularly the way you graze animals, can be beneficial for the soil, for, for building soil, to, for retaining nutrients, for sequestering carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, um, and, and also being an integral part of reversing climate change as those um, learnings became more and more clear, it really shifted how we um, have been managing the farm and managing livestock and how we do things. So, um, you know, I, I feel like we're still making a lot of mistakes and we're really trying to figure that out. Um, but a big one has been something as simple as purchasing electric net fencing that we can move and rotating our animals every few days on our land so that we are managing both their um, manure across the land. We are not overgrazing. We're not mm -hmm. um, packing the earth. We are uh, managing their worm load better because they're not in the same place all the time. Right. Um, even just doing that one step has made such a huge difference in how we perceive, you know, the 20 acres that we are grazing right now and um, what impact that can have. So. I feel like I got sidetracked on your question, but um, all that to say that it's been it's been a real learning curve for us. Sure, but I mean it's it's applaudable for sure, and it's it's something that you know I I in complete agreement with you. You know I also grew up with a father who grew up on a farm, and he still farms, but for a huge operation, so very similar. Mm -hmm you know, those giant tractors, he's really excited every year, they get one that's even bigger, you know, than the one before, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and things like that. But you don't really think about, you know, we're looking at climate change, and how does farming, how do farming practices fit into that, as well as our own personal consumption. So mm -hmm. that's really cool. I, I really love that you guys are doing that. Well, and it's, I mean, it's the, the conversation around climate change is, is everywhere. I, I, I I'm sure it is everywhere for you guys as well, but I know mm -hmm. in Canada and where we are, like, it's just, it's, everyone is talking about it, right? Where kids are talking about it in schools. People are talking about it at businesses. It's on the news. Like it's everywhere. The conversation, obviously not shared views on it, but I think right. most of us are pretty sure that we, it's, it's a conversation we need to be having and a problem we need to address. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, so much of the conversation, um, circles around food and food farming and, and all of that. And, um, it's been, it's been a big, uh, eye opener and challenge for me to shift that conversation to talk about what we are not only putting in our bodies, but what we're also putting on our bodies and talking about wool as a climate beneficial resource, right? Yes. And people are like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, if you purchase and wear wool, especially if it's been farmed in a, in a sustainable fashion, um, you know, you're, you're helping reverse climate change and people are like, huh? <laughs> and so, you know, then you, you break it down and you're like, okay, well, sheep eat grass and that is what produces their wool, right? That they, they take that in its energy. They grow wool because of the grass that they consume and that grass and those plants are part of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in their roots, in the soil, in the grass, and then the sheep eat it. So basically you're helping take carbon out of the atmosphere and converting that energy into wool that now you're wearing a hat from. And 
So if we can broaden that conversation and talk about how we can manage sheep in a way that is climate beneficial and then a way that we can manufacture that wool locally without having to ship it all over the place for manufacturing, then we are encouraging a big part of reversing climate change, which I think is really powerful and huge, right? If, If more of us were able to see that connection and that link. Yeah, exactly. And when you're talking about even something that it just in itself is a renewable resource mm. and can be continued to be, for lack of a better term, harvested every year, I mean, totally. obviously without detriment to the sheep, and then you have something at the end of its life, you know, if it is a pure wool hat, it's, it's biodegradable. So you can exactly. go right back to where it came from. So that is something that, you know, I'm really passionate about as well. So that, I mean, I love... I just love it. I love it all. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, Um, I don't think I even understood the depth of that before, you know, I was in until I got involved until I saw what was going on and I sort of saw how that actually can happen. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is a bit of, you know, it's a rabbit hole in and of itself, but I feel like you start, you start, and I know that you've started the same way. You start with knitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then by the end of it, oh my gosh, you are still knitting, but you are so far down yes. a different path that you thought you never were going to be down. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's I, funny. I mean, I was even, I was talking with someone today about superwash wool and not to dig on superwash wool, but I, you know, I was kind of explaining why how superwash will exist, right? I'm yeah. Like, you know, fibers are covered in tiny little scales. And when you wash it with hot water and add agitation, that's those scales all cling to each other. And that's what causes your item to shrink. I was like, so superwash wool is basically covering those tiny scales with plastic. Yeah. And, she, you know, and she was like, what? Like just shocked. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is the conversations that, you know, that the industry needs to be having is why are we yes. taking this amazing product and and covering it in tiny little bits of plastic right because you know basically why would you why would yeah why would you want to mask all those amazing properties that wool has in and of itself because can it really I mean I know eventually over time that stuff will start to flake off but there's danger with that too of that going back into the environment but exactly like you're gonna lose all those amazing properties that just the wool just the wool has Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I mean, I feel the same way as well. Now I know there's multiple ways in which superwash can be created, but upon that, yes, that's certain. True. Yeah, that mm-hmm. particular method that you're discussing is exactly how I feel about it, and I feel like it is a conversation that hasn't been had um, enough for people to understand what it is. Yes, it's soft. And yes, maybe acid dyes look really pretty on it, but, you know, acid dyes themselves even have a little bit of an issue. But I mean, it's just, if you want to come at it from a climate perspective and an environment mm-hmm. perspective, it's really important to not feel like ignorance is bliss. Cause once you learn it, you cannot unlearn it. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I, I, you know, I think that's, I think when it comes to like clothing and textile and 
um, fashion or whatever. I think that the conversation is about, you know, seven to eight years behind the conversations that people are having around food, right? And and yeah. the conversations around food and what we're putting in our body and what's used to grow our food, grow our food and all of that. Like I, th- I feel like that's very mainstream now. It's not so much fringe. Um, right. And I but I think you know if if anything, I want to I want to push that conversation further and deeper into the fiber industry because I think that conversation is so crucial and if we can get people already asking those big questions then um, maybe support for for sheep farmers that are doing things in a climate beneficial way um, will be supported even stronger you know yes yes absolutely I totally agree with that Um, and and kind of even really going into that so there's um with what you do now you do something that's pretty unique I think that I don't know that I've really seen in many other places but you guys do something that's called a sponsorship program yeah (laughs) Um, can you tell us about that and what that is right um so uh, when when we were kind of first figuring out how to how to start a sheep farm I a big part of it was capital right and and I mean no matter which farmer you speak to capital and cash flow is a big huge concern because mm-hmm. it's hard to make money as a as a farmer even whether you're a commercial farmer or a small farmer right right especially starting out if there's no infrastructure so you know my husband and I were just like trying to figure this out how can we start a farm we have no capital we don't we have no experience like how can we do this and um one of my best friends called me up and she she just said she's like how much would it cost you to like just raise one sheep for me for a year. And, you know, she, she and I have, we met over social activism, but also our love of knitting. And so, um, that's always been a tenant of our friendship. And she was like, how, how much would it cost? Like, I just want to pay you to take care of a sheep for me. And I was like, this idea is brilliant. Yeah. I was like, there are a lot of people that would love to be a part of that process but can't do it, right? They live in a city, they have no desire, they're not a farmer, they don't have access to that resources or there's knowledge, but they would be willing to pay a certain amount of money to, to be a part of that process. And so this was the beginning of the sponsorship program. And this is really what what kickstarted our our farm was I was I, you know, one of the things because of my history and my background, I'm I am able to sort of tell a story about what we're doing and make it accessible to people that have that have never been to a farm or don't have farming in their life but they love knitting right and they love wool and they really want that connection so I thought if if there's a real opportunity here um, both for education and connection so we started the sponsorship program so essentially um, people will sponsor one sheep for a full year and included in that sponsorship is naming rights so they get to name the sheep um, monthly updates and in those updates <clears throat> I send pictures of the sheep and you know I usually send a write-up about you know what happens on a sheep farm in the month of May what are we what are we focusing on in the month of May what are we focusing on in November why do we do this why do we do that um, what challenges are we facing this year last year was a big drought so you know I, I wrote a lot about how management of animals and land changes in a drought year. So a lot of really good information and education around how things work. And then, you know, a little bit about their sheep. Um, And then at the end of the year, they get a certain amount of either raw wool or processed yarn. 
depending on which level of sponsorship they, they chose. So, um, you know, and so I've, I'm going into my third year of it. It'll, the third year will start in May. And, uh, you know, I, I've, people are, I can only do as many sheep as I have in the program. So, um, it's, it's somewhat limited by that, but you know, every year it's been, it's been really popular and people have really wanted to do that and be a part of the process. And I've had a lot of feedback that, you know, people have learned things that they never knew and that it's been really valuable. Um, yeah, so it's been a really good program and a really interesting way to connect people who are in the city with the animals that are, you know, creating their fiber, their yarn. Yeah. Yeah. And so then did the, did the cost then, so it literally is like all their care. So does that cover like any sort of, um, you know, in the event that they need, you know, like medication or they need, you know, or you guys need a new fence or something like that. Does that right. all kind of get distributed? Well, I, so I, I set it up. There's, there's five levels. The lowest, the lowest level is a hundred bucks and the biggest one is 500 bucks. And, and the difference in those is how much yarn you get at the end of the, at the end of the year. Mm. Um, and, and so, I mean, the, this, I wouldn't, I, the sponsorship program, it, it wouldn't keep our farm going in and of itself, but, okay. um, it certainly, it, it helps in terms of, um, those upfront costs that are, that are so necessary, like purchasing hay. I, you know, the sponsorship program allows me to purchase hay for our winters and, it does allow me to bring the vet out once a year for an on-site visit. Um, you know, so if there's extra costs for specific animals, the, the cost never changes for the, for the sponsor once they've, once they've purchased it in the, in the springtime. Um, yeah, but you know, and it's funny because I was speaking with a, with an older farmer in the community, not a wool farmer, but a sheep farmer. And, uh, he just couldn't believe that I was, that people would, you know, pay any amount of money for the right to name a sheep. And, uh, Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, um, approaching farming the, the way we have, because we've done things really different and really unusual. We're a little bit of the freaks of the neighborhood, I think. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think, uh, it's, it's an important shift in the way that we're approaching it in terms well, of yeah. what we're trying to accomplish. Of course. And I think consumers are shifting too. So yes. whereas like one farmer who's been raising sheep their whole life has never seen consumers be super concerned about where does it come from? What does it look like? What is its name? Like people want to see the name of the sheep next to the yarn that it came from. Like that is, mm-hmm. that's more of a recent development. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And, and being able to connect with those sheep, like there's, there's a handful of people who are involved in the sponsorship program who live, um, you know, within an hour, an hour and a half's drive of our farm. So they come out for a shearing festival and they are there when their sheep gets sheared and they pick over the fleece and they skirt it. And, you know, there's this real feeling of connection and almost ownership over that, which I absolutely love that, um, that, that people are feeling that connection and they see what it, what is involved. And, you know, there, there was one woman who sponsored a sheep last year and she made a sweater out of this sheep's fleece. And, you know, she was like, this is the most, prize sweater I own (laughs) you know she's like I know everything that went into this and I just love that 
That is so cool. And, and that kind of actually leads me into my next question, kind of talking about how you bring the community into what you do. And I'd love to hear more about like sharing festival. Cause I mean, that really sounds like an amazing way for people to learn almost like, you know, uh, throwing a fleece and picking a fleece isn't necessarily something someone's going to intuitively know how to do. So they're mm-hmm. kind of picking up a little bit of a skill, but yeah. Can you tell us about like that festival and other kinds of events you guys have? Yeah. I, you know, I just find that, um, the, the, one of the biggest ways that, um, the care of animals and and the preparation of our food and our clothing resonates is by people having this hands-on experience. So, you know, we try and organize um, as many on-farm events as we can and really encourage people coming out and, you know, getting right in there and and doing it and seeing, you know, what it takes. Um, You know, shearing is something that still has to be done by hand there's no automated way to shear sheep so every single time any of us are using wool or wearing wool or observing it as carpeting or insulation or bedding or whatever that was sheared by hand um and so having people watch that process and and be a part of it and see how shears you know manipulate and move and do all of that work i think it's it really puts a different value on that product and Mm -hmm. um especially for kids, right? I I had never seen a sheep be sheared until I was like 34 years old. So, uh, you know, I love that kids can also come out and be a part of it and observe what's going on and, and, and be that connected to the source of their clothing. So, um, yeah, so the shearing festival is just a chance and, and it, for us, the shearing festival too, is a celebration. That's like our harvest, right. As we get to finally see the the fruit of our labor for the last year, the sheep's labor too. But, um, yeah, (laughs) so it's kind of a really fun celebratory experience. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like so much fun. I think that's such a great idea and to be able to kind of open up the space to people so that they can learn and see and interact is just, that's just really neat. So, mm-hmm. so okay, so let's, let's get into the wool mill here because okay, <laughs> this is really, this is really unique of you guys, but it's also something that sounds like a pretty big undertaking. So just for people who don't know, let's say you don't know anything about a mill. Mm-hmm. So what what kind of services do they offer? Like what are your roles in in working with fleeces, things like that? Right. So our wool mill, we we do two things essentially. We will process other farmers or or fiber enthusiasts or whatever their wool. So they'll bring us their fleece and we'll process it to whatever they want either yarn or fiber or a bat or maybe just scouring washing their wool whatever um so that's about 40 percent of what we do and then 60 percent is we do our own wool so from our own flock and then um wool from other farmers that where we purchase the raw wool and then we we turn it into our own line of yarn that we sell so when fiber comes into the mill um, usually dirty, uh, you know, right off the sheep or whatever. So we will skirt it, take any obvious, um, manure or veggie batter or whatever out of it. And we scour it. So we wash it, um, with a citrus based biodegradable soap and, uh, and then, and then we start the processing. So essentially it's what nine machines. There is, uh, 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 oh my gosh. 
my brain. It's just lost. <laughs> uh, we pick it. So it opens up the fiber and then there's a carter. So we cart it basically combing the fiber. Um, and, and if people want roving or bats, the carter is the end of the line for them. Then it comes out as either roving or, or bats. Um, and then there's a draw frame. So we run the fiber roving through the draw frame and that just further aligns the fibers and stretches them out. And then there's a spinner. So we spin it and then most often people want their yarn plied. So then we take it to the plier, <laughs> take it from the plier, put it on a cone winder, wind it into a cone. Uh, and then we steam it, which sets the twist. And then we put it into a skein. So um, it's kind of, you know, whenever people come for mill tours, they're kind of amazed at how many steps the fiber goes through um, from raw to processed. And the one thing I, I love about that is that every single step we're handling that fiber. So we're looking at the fiber, um, you know, 10 different times from the minute it comes into the mill to the minute it leaves the mill, um, you know, which is a pretty intense process. And, uh, you know, hopefully people can recognize that they're getting a product that has been well manufactured and, and, you know, sort of well cared for because we're just handling it so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's say that you had just like one fleece, like from start to finish, what does something like that take time-wise? Um, like into, into yarn, like a skinny yarn. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like a skinny. Yeah, no, that's, um, well, if, if I don't, if I don't take the drying, cause it, we, we let the wool dry for about 12 hours or overnight mm. or whatever, but so sure. if you take that out of it, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say from beginning to end, it, it would take about, uh, yeah, three to six hours for one fleece. Again, you know, it depends if you're, if you're turning your yarn into a chunky weight <laughs> three ply, then it'll go through the spinner really quickly. If you want to make a fingering weight, it's going to take much longer. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that would be about the time three to five okay. hours. Yeah. And so have you had to learn how to, I'm sure like work with different types of fleeces because some are going to be considered like finer than others and require different types of handling. Right. Yeah, for sure. So we've worked at this point, we've worked with really fine wools, a lot of beautiful like Targi and Rambouillet um, to long wools. We've done Wensleydale and Romney and Lincoln long wool. Um, and then some down wools uh, haven't worked with those quite as much. Um, we've processed alpaca, we've processed llama, even have processed a little bit of Angora rabbit um, and mohair. So yeah, I mean, I, we've only had the mill for eight months. So I, I feel like oh. we're, we're in the middle of our learning curve, but um, sure. it's amazing how, you know, even now I, I wool comes into the mill and I'm like, yep, I know, I know what we need to do with this and I can see what's happening with this fiber. And I know how this is going to react at the spinner when I get it all the way over there. So, and it's really advanced my understanding of, of breeds. And I mean, I do, I teach a workshop on, on breed specific knitting and I, you know, I, most knitters, myself included until I got involved in this work was, you know, wool is wool. Um, but when you start realizing the difference between fine wools and the long wools and the down wools and, um, what those mean and what those look and look like and, and how that affects the durability or the elasticity or the warmth or, 
whatever of your project, it, it informs your knitting in a way that it, it's just kind of amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. I've been learning the exact same thing, especially getting into really this podcast. I mean, it's been a great way to kind of learn that, you know, maybe you have, maybe you have a breed that's not super fine. But that doesn't mean the wool isn't worth something. And that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that there isn't a perfect project for it somewhere, just depending on, you know, what the feel of that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it really um, informs your knitting in a way that, I don't know, makes it a little bit more meaningful, right? You're like, I have this project based on the quality of this wool and the characteristics that make it so unique and... Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an added element. I, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, it's really amazing and fascinating. So did you guys have to do, did you, are you completely self-taught with all of your equipment and everything or did you have? Um, The company that we purchased it from, they're from Prince Edward Island and they came and installed it and also have trained us quite a bit. So, Uh, okay. um, And they're great. A lot of it has been just our own, um, process of making mistakes and learning but uh we did get initial training okay well that's yeah that's really neat um so I mean just coming up for you guys I mean what's what's next what does this year look like for you um yeah I mean we're we're continuing with the sponsorship program and we're really just going to focus on getting to know the mill this is the first sort of shearing season that we've had the mill so we're already recognizing that it'll be very busy as shearing is happening and people are bringing wool by to be processed mm-hmm. um yeah i mean we're just kind of trying to be consistent this summer i think there's been so much every year after year after year this year we're just trying to um get our feet planted yeah yeah um yeah so we're not we just keep saying we're not adding anything new yeah because I mean you're really just making yourselves be more I guess really for lack of a better term like you're just becoming more educated year after year after year and becoming like very solid at what you do exactly yeah and oh, yeah. and starting to reach out. I mean, we've started a, a fiber shed organization up here and just trying to reach out with other farmers and kind of have those conversations and trying to encourage different management practices and more connection in, in terms of how we're raising our animals and what that looks like and offering support for other farmers. And so, you know, in terms of community the, the broader community that's a big focus of mine as well that that's so great I just I love it and I really appreciate you coming on and kind of running through everything with us today but I mean like if, if somebody wants to learn more about um, you guys and your farm like where can they find you um, well our website is longwayhomestead.com or Instagram which is kind of more the day to day that I post is uh, just longwayhomestead and or we always love visitors so perfect well yeah thank you again it's been such a pleasure thank you so much it's been lovely to chat with you 
As usual, I'm going to go ahead and link to all the things that we talked about today in the show notes, and you can find those at www.woolanddye.com slash podcast. And also too, just for anyone who's interested in um, any naturally dyed yarn, I am going to go ahead and have a shop update in my personal shop online on Monday, April 1st at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time. Just some new colors that I've put in, things like indigo, some more logwood, and then I've been playing with uh, black oak and having that mixed with titanium, which creates like a really brilliant orange. So those will go up on Monday, and I will see you guys next time.